Welcome to Marketing Thought Leadership, the podcast that offers insightful discussions on thought-provoking marketing topics. Here's the host of our show, marketing consultant, speaker, author, and educator, and the president of Leverage 2 Market Associates, Linda Popke. Hi, this is Linda Popke, and I'm here for another episode of Marketing Thought Leadership. Today we have Christine Crandall, the president of New Business Strategies, which is a B2B strategy and customer experience consulting firm. Christine leads client services teams that serve customers worldwide. She's been widely published in places like Business Week, Forbes, B2B Marketing, Investor Business Daily, CMO.com, and she's also a blogger for Huffington Post and Forbes.com. She's keynoted and spoken on building customer-centric organizations, aligning sales and marketing, and customer experience strategy. She's also been uh, recognized as a, one of the finalists for Market Profs B2B Luminary of the Year Award. She's been one of the, named one of the top 20 women in sales and marketing, one of the top 15 influential leaders in sales and lead management and social selling, and she's been named one of Silicon Valley's most influential women by the Silicon Valley San Jose Business Journal. So welcome, Christine. It's a pleasure to have you here. Oh, welcome, Linda. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. I'm really looking forward to this conversation and being able to share uh, whatever I know with your audience. Fantastic. So customer experience, that is such a hot topic today. We hear about it all the time. What is customer experience? Is it related to marketing strategy? Is it selling tactics? Is it an HR culture thing? I mean, well, how do you see customer experience? From our view, customer experience is all those things. Let me tell you what it's not, okay? It's not a piece of technology. And that's where I think a lot of the confusion is. When we look at customer experience or we look at customer-led organizations or customer-obsessed organizations or customer-oriented organizations, you know, you can it, it, they come in all sorts of different labels. It, it really is nets down to if I understand my entire life cycle that my customer wants to have and that my customer deems is where value can be gained right through the use of the product and through the relationship, then that's how organizations need to structure their people, the process, their technology, their innovation, all of those types of things. So it's all, it's everything marketing, sales, and, and it's culture. So it is a, a transformation that comes in baby steps. The challenge today, and if anybody has been to Dreamforce this, this year, sorry, last year, 2013, that was all the rage. It's the Internet of the customer, and you can go to one of any of the 350 exhibitors that were on the floor, and everybody will give you the check-the-box answer to customer experience. It's not a piece of technology. You know, there's a lot of stuff that has to happen within companies to, for us to be able to understand what their customers want and value and make that change before you start sticking a piece of technology into the organization. I'm glad you said that because so often we hear these things and it just feels like, God, if I could implement a technology or a software or a program or an app that we'd fix the problem. And it's not that. It, it's something that has to be more pervasive through the whole organization. So if we talk about um, customers that are embracing customer experience strategy and some that aren't, what do you see as the kind of big strategic difference between them? What, what separates them out? Well, there are a number of characteristics that, that I see, and let's just sort of be clear, in that we serve B2B companies, so we don't really work in the, in the B2C space. So what we're seeing on the B2B side is that this 
the light bulb goes off in the CEO's head. And so there's a consistent pattern for those companies that are, are becoming customer-led or becoming you know, customer-centric is that the CEO looks at their situation and, and realizes that the game's changed, right, that their sales organization or their marketing organization cannot force a buyer to the table, cannot force a buyer to, to buy anything from them, and the buyer has rejected this notion that the sales individual is the source of all, all good knowledge. So it's really that one CEO, and the CEO realizes that we need to make a fundamental change if we want to survive, right? That is the second characteristic. There's this recognition that becoming customer-centric is I have to do this. It's one of those I got to do this because if I don't, I will be left behind. The, the other characteristic that we see in companies that are embracing it is this union that happens. It's sort of like this three-legged stool that comes together between sales and marketing and support, uh, not because they are the only customer-facing organiza organizations within a company, but they're the primary customer-facing organizations. And these three come together and, realize, and have realized that if that experience is not understood, and if that experience is not consistently delivered, that it will actually drive churn. And so usually there's an event, right? There's an event that has happened that has brought that home, like sales, sales a great example, and we'll leave this, the company unnamed. You know, sales is through the roof, completely different experience post-purchase, churn then goes through the roof. And, and so these three teams start, start to come together. Um, the other characteristic that I see happening in, these, in organizations is, is involvement of customers uh, beyond just the product roadmap, beyond um, you know, what, you know, what feedback or what would you like us to do better or how would, have we you know, served you better or annoyed us. There's involvement of the customer all the way through the organization up into the point of actually involving them in the strategic of the business planning. So, so it's, it's a really different type of a DNA of an organization, but it doesn't happen overnight. These companies step into it, lots of baby steps, lots of crawl, crawl walk, run, um, but there's clearly a DNA change that starts to happen. And that's interesting because you're right. I, I mean, most organizations, they say, gee, we've got feedback, maybe we have an advisory board, we show, share a product roadmap, et cetera. But to actually almost embed customers in the entire organization all the way back to the strategic planning is, is very different to a lot of organizations. It's scary. It's, it's, it's scary, this notion of, well, uh, if I do that, then I've given A, control, uh, control of my business, and B, how do I, how do I rationalize all of this feedback and determine what you know what feedback to take and what feedback not to take and how do I manage you know the individual or the company or the set of customers whose feed, feedback I've rejected and and for many organizations that's just way too complex and that's just way too messy we'll, we'll just we'll just ignore all of that in uh, in in that is hence is the rise of the chief customer officer and, and what's interesting is you start to see this evolution of what happens with this new role. You'll, it will either be um, a, um, the next step for a CMO, right, a chief marketing mm -hmm. officer. They'll, they'll be charted with, well, you own marketing. You know, you make the customer happy. Um, and that has a very interesting uh, set of outcomes that comes to that. 
The the other side of it is it's someone who actually runs customer service and support. You see a lot of this today. Uh, you know, it comes in the form of customer success organizations, which I find interesting uh, for lots of different reasons because it's usually an implementation group or or some sort of an odd group in which they um, are taking customer service and support and now are chartering them with customer you know customer success, which is has no recognition and no influence on the pre-purchase cycle. And then you have the chief customer officers that are um, in, they report to the CEO and they report to the board and they have a governance role. So this is a funded role, they have their own budget, they have a centralized team, so these two characteristics are very key. And uh, their reporting becomes part of the financial package that actually goes to the board on a quarterly or on a monthly basis. So we're seeing that really is um, a hallmark of someone who's pretty advanced in understanding what it means to become customer, a customer-centric organization. Interesting. Fascinating. And, and we are seeing so much of this changing over the last several years. It, it's, it's great. Um, what are some of the myths that you see about this? Because certainly uh, anyone you talk to has a different vision of what customer experience is or what it should be. So what are the things that you see that are perhaps things we need to disregard and say, no, that's not it? Well, yeah, I think one of the myths is it's really all about my the NPS score. Um, I happen to not be a huge advocate of NPS scores. They're they're very informative and they're very nice, but they're very point in time. I agree. And, I, I feel absolutely yeah. the same way. Yeah. They're, they're very much also uh, driven by culture and cultural yes. norms, so very different than a U.S. score than you might see in Europe or Latin America or Asia, et cetera. Exactly, exactly. So one of so one of this myth, this myth is well, it's really all about you know the NPS score. Um, another myth is it really is only about pre-purchase. You know that experience is only about getting my marketing programs to convert higher, um, getting my sales you know team to actually have you know a more at bats or higher hit rate or make more of their quota. Um, in in what's being forgotten in those myths is is this what I talked about earlier? Is if you can you you do that, and then after post purchase, the experience is very different, and then your churn just goes through the roof. So so it's this this short term tactical view that this is just some sort of new modern marketing organization, which I cringe when I actually hear that term. Um, and and it's a tactical it's a tactical initiative. What's when in reality we're talking about a transformation or an evolution of, of an organization that actually goes as far deep as its values. And, and I think another myth is what we talked about earlier, is this myth about, well, if I just implement responses or Eloqua or, you know, name, name one of your, you know, vendors, then, then I'm good. I, I don't need to change my behavior. I just need to implement this package, and somehow magically, it's going to help me to understand and and behave the way my my customer wants. So I, I think it's the the core of that comes down to this is not an initiative, it's not a fad, it's not a gimmick to improve conversion rates. It really it really is a a tectonic shift that's you know very subtle that's happening in how the buyer and the seller dynamic is being redefined. Absolutely, and I see that happening a lot. Now, now, you've created a seller's compass methodology. Talk to me a little bit about where that came from and what was the catalyst for that, and how does that relate into, into all of this? So I, I have been, before 
went into consulting, I was a serial CMO and uh, for companies like Ariba and, and a number of other companies. And there's this problem or there's this challenge that vexes every CMO. You're given a pot of money, which, okay, we all agree is never enough, but you're given this, this huge pot of money, money and there's this expectation that you are going to be able to provide some benchmark or some number of rep or amount of revenue that you're going to generate from that investment. You know, not an unrealistic expectation. Now, this was many years ago in which that expectation wasn't explicit. It was sort of it was implicit out in the organization that says, I'm going to give you $18 million, I'm going to give you $20 million, and you're going to give me how much, you know, how much in pipe. And as um, you know, I started to unravel that as, as, as why was revenue so unpredictable? You know, why is it that we could do campaigns and one campaign would perform extraordinarily well one year and next year would be just, it wouldn't perform? You know, what was the vexing problem of, of, of unraveling that? And it led me on this very interesting journey of which, you know, you start to look at your own organization and, well, let's just integrate marketing, let's, let's become more sophisticated, let's get cleaner on our data. Let's be better on our skills, and you find that that doesn't solve the problem. And then you go on and go, well, I have a, a less than optimal relationship with sales. Let me now, you know, align with sales and marketing, and we all can get together and, and sing kumbaya and and get along and become friends. And you find that that helps the problem, but sales is actually suffering from the exact same problem in that they can't predict revenue because their pipeline and their sales cycles are acting like accordions. So you figure, okay, well, that's not. That's not the problem. And at the end of all of this peeling of the onion analysis is when I really came and sort of stumbled onto this point of like, oh, wow, it's, uh, it, it is us. You know, we are the problem because the buyer had actually changed. The, 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 this, the, their access to information and how they use information and in some of their past experiences in dealing with large B2B purchases like an SAP, an Oracle purchase, where it's and not exactly the way they wanted it, has created an environment in which they've decided, you know, I'm in control and I'm now going to dictate. Uh, it was unraveling that onion and, and that started me actually writing down how I did that and um, the seller's compass, which is a, a set of methodologies. I mean, it's, for doc it's a documented set of, of tools and templates and processes and work plans. Uh, came out of that that says, how do I understand the buyer, the, the journey, which actually is the beginning of the process. It's not the end of the process. Right. How do I actually then take that knowledge and co-create an experience that the buyer would pay a premium for? How do I then use that information and that knowledge and that insight and that buyer to align my corporate strategy with what the value expectation of, of that customer, and then how do I institutionalize it within my organization through culture changes, through organizational alignment, and through you know training and, and other things. So that's how that came into being. And now that's not in a year. This is spanning you know this is spanning five years um, before to, to actually have this thing come into fruition, um, and it works. But it's been an it's been a very interesting journey because we all sort of want to stop along the way and go oh well it's sales and marketing alignment and in my advice is to folks you have to push beyond that because that's not the root cause you have to always go to the root cause and find the root cause. And I think you're absolutely right. We we've talked for years about sales and marketing alignment how they have to come together, and that's necessary but it, it's not sufficient. We need to to figure out what's beneath it. I, I think that's a great point. Um, excellent. 
so you, you talk a lot about B2B Fortune 500 companies and how they value relationship over price. Talk a little bit more about that. How do you see that? Where, where do you see that occurring? Well, you know, what's interesting with Journeys and the work that we've done is is there are a couple of, you know, preconceived notions. There's this notion that there's one journey, right? And, and so let right. me sort of go through that, and then I'll tell you what happens when, when we get into these companies because it's, it's a little counterintuitive. Um, so there's this notion there's this one journey, and that actually isn't the case. Um, you have multiple journeys uh, by persona. Um, you have multiple journeys. Journeys will change based upon the maturation of a, of a business problem that's being solved, um, and so and also there's this other there's this other theory out there that says well the journeys are different between healthcare and aerospace defense, and the journeys are different between you know different geographic regions in in, in around the world, um, around cultures. So, but in reality is, is is based upon the research that we've done and the journey mapping that we've done and for our clients, what we find is that the Fortune 100. Um, regardless of whether it's aerospace or defense or it's, you know, down into retail, it acts like a homogeneous group. You know, the journeys are relatively the same for the same archetype of, of business problem. There are variations based on culture around the world, um, and there are some slight variations based on personas, but at, at the Fortune 100 level, the journeys are the same. It's in, in that would go down to the Fortune 500. It's in that group in which relationship actually comprises the quality of the relationship comprises 60% of the purchase decision. I'll give you a couple of quotes. You know, we spend a lot of time with General Electric, and what General Electric said was relationship trumps price. Very point, very clear. So, and that nationwide is an, another great example. They have this 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 model that they use is called the ear. You know, the thing that sticks on your head and ear. And it's economic architecture and relationship. And you can have the best economic equation, meaning price. You can have the best architecture um, for whatever problem that you're solving. But if that relationship has not been to their expectation or consistent, uh, then that vendor will not will not win that deal, or and that vendor will not be a permanent um, a permanent um, you know part of that the, the the vendor list. So you know for them. For that group, it is it is about the relationship, um, and this is pre-purchase and post-purchase, and how they go about purchasing and testing what that relationship will be like post-purchase is equally interesting because they're looking for markers and they're looking for evidence that what they're experiencing today with the sales team is comparable to what they will experience post-purchase. Um, with the customer support and the rest of the organization. Now, if we go down mid-market, right? So we're talking more about the mid-sized businesses. So we're talking about hundred million dollars. We're talking right, about right. maybe up to a billion dollars. It winds up flipping around. So sixty percent of that purchase decision really has to do with does this particular solution solve my problem to the outcome that I that I have targeted. And the relationship winds up taking a, a, a bit of a back seat on the pre-purchase side, but it takes the full front seat post-purchase. You know, now it's like, oh, I got, I bought your stuff. I'm, I'm using it. Yeah, okay. I either am or am not getting the ROI that I expected. Now I'm going to focus on the relationship, right? And so now that that quality of that relationship post-purchase, and does that seller understand? that um, I, my, me as a buyer, my definition of value changes 
during the post-purchase um, journey, does, 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 does this person actually get this? Does the seller actually get that? And if they do, then great. If they don't, then they're not going to get, you know, repeat business. So there are some differences between size of, of companies, and obviously there are cultural differences around the world. But it, it, relationship is the primary is the primary determinant at the Fortune 500 level. Now, what's interesting about what you said, and this doesn't surprise me at all, but it's relationship, and even when you get into the smaller SMB market, it's does it solve my problem? What I didn't hear you say at all is it's about price, because it's never about price. It's never about getting the cheapest thing and out the door, or it shouldn't be, because that's that's not where we're at. It's all about providing value, and either the value is through the relationship or the value is because you have the solution that I think will solve my problem. But it's really a focus on value versus uh, let's let's go with the cheapest thing we can possibly get because you're talking about something that's so important that uh, short-term cost savings are just not going to make the big difference when you're talking about customers and, and revenue and, and my business for a long-term perspective. Right. You know, and what's interesting is that this definition of value is, is there is not one definition of value. Right. One of the things that that we see on the post-purchase side of the journey is that value initially is um, is you know, it's in a relationship, right? But it's it's also partly rooted in the product, right? So I'm going to go buy a combine, right? I'm going to go buy a piece of equipment, and if I get this piece of equipment and it performs like um, like I expected, so I have the ROI, I have the outcome that I'm seeking. Then all of a sudden, the buyer goes through, and I use the buyer as a very generic term. Um, it could be customer, it could be you know all sorts of different things. Right. But then all of a sudden, the buyer goes through a different shift. They're like, okay, I've checked that box. I'm getting the ROI. Now their definition of value it changes. It's it's looking at that vendor and saying, can that vendor help me in other ways? And this is where we get into personas. This is where we get into um, the the archetype or the maturity of the business problem. You could be very much a person in which now all of a sudden the value is I'm you know I'm this young rising star in my organization. Okay, Mr. Vendor or Ms. Vendor, can you help me be successful? Right. In, in another organ situation, that vendor um, that value definition is much more defined along the lines. Can you give me access to information that I would not normally come across in order to help me you know, solve or be more smarter in my organization or drive a strategic plan? Or the value could be defined, can you network with me with my peers? We see this a lot in enterprise software. Can you help me network with my peers to make introductions to people that I normally would not have access to? So we companies forget about the fact that the definition of value changes post-purchase, and it's not rooted in the product. Absolutely. And it's really value just like beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So the value yes. is what your customer says it is, not what you think it is. Yes, exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. Great. Well, this is fascinating, and, we, and I could talk about this for hours, and I know you could too, but I want to ask you one last question. Is Going back to customer experience specifically, um, we hear so many folks talking about content strategy, content marketing, et cetera. How does customer experience really play a role, or where does it play a role in, in crafting an effective content strategy? Yeah, the journey mapping, it, 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 it plays a key role, and this is the quickest win for marketeers. If you have a journey map, it becomes a decoder ring. If it's done correctly, and journey maps should not take forever to do, they're actually relatively quick processes to go execute. You should know, or you know, we should know, for every step, this is long before the buyer ever raised their hand anywhere 
on the web. We should know exactly the steps and activities that that buyer goes through and what do they seek and value and where do they seek that asset or that content. So, for instance, if we were to go at the very beginning of a journey map, there's typically a, a research stage, right? I'm looking for trends. I'm looking for patterns. And there's a specific point in which companies will say, I'm going to look for best practices. I want to see how companies like me approach solving this problem. And the asset that they're looking for is a white paper. It could be um, you know, a lot of different pieces. What's interesting is if you have that, that journey map, right, then it's very clear what asset you need to have available for that stage, for that persona, in, in what specific channel do you want to distribute that asset? And, 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 and let me just also be clear, you know, we need to get out of this habit of thinking content is all vendor created. It's not. 75% of vendor created content is considered be not valuable because it's biased and it's not objective. So let's look at content strategy as being yours, mine, and ours. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the key is start, map, lay, start mapping it up, you know, map, layering it up against the journey map. And what I advise our clients client it is to just focus on providing those assets the buyers seek and value. You may love the latest white paper, but if nobody's reading it, don't do it. Yep. Just and that makes it that's the quickest win for a marketer to do that and they can do that in ninety days. Absolutely. And it ties into something I'm saying which is which is we need to stop just doing more, 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 more slow down, understand who your customers are, what they want, and just give them what they need. Don't Oh, that's fantastic. I am so glad that you are sharing that because I, I think everybody needs to go to the highest building and start screaming that <laughs> from the top of every building. That is the topic of my new book that I'm working on and will be out early next year. So hopefully we'll be have people screaming from the, from the rooftops and, and get that message out there. Well, I definitely, as soon as that comes out, you need to let me know because I want to definitely help promote that because um, it is, you know, we went and had a uh, meeting with um, a large mobile carrier, which I'll name nameless, okay. in Seattle. Um, they have over 6,000 pieces of content. I'm like, oh how do you God. manage that? Yeah. You can't manage that. Not only that, but by the time we finish this call, they'll probably have 7,000. They're just creating <laughs> more, right? Yep. Yeah, it's it's not about more, more, more. It's about being focused and being laser targeted and getting out what's necessary and not just everything. So right, absolutely. it's the right piece to the right person at the right time through the right channel. Absolutely. Well, this has been wonderful. I've been having a great time here talking with Christine Crandall. Christine is the president of New Business Strategies. And if you would like to find out more about this important topic, you can go to her website, which is newbizs.com, and let me spell that. That's N-E-W-B-I-Z-S.com. Uh, and there's uh, lots of information there. And as I mentioned, she's blogging in a lot of great places, so you can find out about Christine and, and her thoughts in, in all those areas as well. So thank you, Christine, for being here with us. Oh, thank you, Linda. I appreciate the opportunity. It was a, it was a lot of fun. Okay. This is Linda Popke. Until next time, uh, we look forward to seeing you at Marketing Thought Leadership. We hope you enjoyed this edition of Marketing Thought Leadership, brought to you by Leverage 2 Market Associates. If you'd like to find out how powerful marketing results can transform your organization, contact us at www.leverage2market.com.